Hi everyone, I'm Amanda. I'm Ronnie. And you're listening to Two Person Book Club. So this month's book is The Psychopath Test by John Ronson. Mm -hmm. I heard about John Ronson for the first time. Heard about him when he did this book. He also has a couple uh, podcasts about uh, the porn industry, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which are really interesting. First one is about just how the porn industry was changed by the advent of digital media and the collapse in the porn market, the paying porn market. He's quite interested to interesting topics, as we are, on yeah, this podcast. absolutely. And he's also very well known for The Men Who Stare at Goats. Yeah, and he wrote The Men Who Stare at Goats, which was weird, because I'd heard of that movie separately as like a George Clooney movie about crazy army experiments, and I didn't right. put that together with John Ronson. You he's, rarely go straight to the author. Yeah, exactly, right. when you see a movie. But he's a very particular, super pleasant, idiosyncratic British man. That's true. And He's very idiosyncratic. He has such a fascinating writing style. I would say for such a dark subject matter, this book gets wicked dark. Right. But it's also written in an extremely playful way. It is. And what he does that's kind of deceptive is he kind of plays possum because he is such a kind of dorky, push the glasses up against the bridge of your nose English person. But he <laughs> manages to get himself into so many different he kind of infiltrates so many different things in all of his books including the psychopath test he gets in and builds rapport with scientologists Mm -hmm, he mm -hmm. builds rapport with a ceo of sunbeam who might have some psychopathic tendencies and he's able to just weave in and out of these worlds because he's like, oh, I'm just a, a nerdy dork. Yeah, and we'll get into a lot of the nitty-gritty of this book, obviously. That's what we're here to do. But one thing I really love structurally about this book is how keen John Ronson is on splitting the difference between personal experience and actual scientific research. Right. Um, he really he really has an elegant way of interweaving his own neuroses with the research that he's conducting. And I, and I sort of love that. Absolutely. And that may be a play to get the reader interested in the book as well. Another thing he does narratively is he doesn't allow the reader, at least me, the reader, to take sides. You can't handicap this person. Oh, this is the good guy. This person's the bad guy. And so you don't you can't place yourself because he'll go back around and show how uh, one side is not doing something ethical right after you were cheering for them. Right. Well, the other thing, too, is that the book is called The Psychopath Test. No one picks this book up at Barnes & Noble and says, or Amazon, wherever you get your books, support your local bookstores. Right, right, right. No one picks up The Psychopath Test at their local bookstore. independent bookstore. Right, thank you. And says, um, no one picks up this book without thinking, oh, I guess I'm going to find out how psychopathic I am. Right? Because we're all, like, a little psychopathic, and we're all pretty selfish. Yeah. And it's our hubris that is used jujitsu style against us in multiple points in this book. Which is simply marvelous. And John Ronson does it with a delicate touch, and he takes us down some very weird rabbit holes. Speaking of very weird rabbit holes. Go on. He starts with the Scientologists. Yeah, talk about it. Which is the first time he kind of takes a quote-unquote enemy of pop culture and gets you to consider them as an ally. He's got a fun little devil's advocate motif that rears its head multiple times. Yeah, he has this Scientologist buddy named 
Brian, who he enlists, uh, Brian and Scientologists enlist him in trying to get a supposedly sane man named Tony out of a mental institution where he's been placed, the Scientologists say, wrongly. Now, if you know anything about the Scientologists, you know that they think anybody that is in a mental institution is there wrongly, and that anybody that has a diagnosis of any kind of psychological illness is misdiagnosed. Wait, is that true that, is it everyone? I'm not asking to like be coy. Like, is that true that it's like everyone? I didn't do much background research. I, I believe that the Scientologists believe that mental illness, psychiatry, and psychology are not valid. They are very, very down on the psychiatric industry. Right. For sure. Right. Down with psychiatric industry, up with, you know, getting your thetan levels. Right. There, there are, um, there um, are some, there are some natural enemy right. elements to um, psychiatry and, it, uh, I don't know, Zorp the lizard god is coming to save us. Exactly. That's not what Scientology is, but for no, all no, practical no. intents and purposes. Uh, I think it's a volcano god. Their god. Who knows? So many gods running around there. Deep, half-hearted apologies to all of our Scientologist listeners. listeners. No, you guys do a lot of good work and then some bad work. They actually do do a lot of good work. Yeah, they do do a lot of good work. I was, I was pleased to learn about that. Including you use a sword for evil, but the sword can also be used for good. You Right. Rescuing people from misdiagnoses, to me, is doing good. Right, that is exactly. doing good. Right. And it's a very interesting case that they explore, this uh, this Tony person. Yeah, Tony yeah. the Sane Man. Mm-hmm. He is in Broadmoor in England, which is a really gnarly hospital for people with mental, violent mental illnesses that the state believes need to be confined. And Brian, the Scientologist, and John Ronson are on a mission to get Tony the Sane Man out of Broadmoor. Well, John Ronson goes in as a journalist. Of course. Which, again, circling back to how John Ronson worms his way into places that it would be very hard to worm your way into, he's like the only journalist that Mm -hmm. they allow in Broadmoor One presumes because he's so fucking charming. I know. He's so British and he's like, oh gosh, I'm just doing a story about, you know, psychopaths. We will let British people do almost anything. We will let British people do almost anything. But then again, it's Britain where they let British people do almost anything. I wonder if there's a subset of British people that are extra British to the British. I think if that demographic exists, John Ronson is perhaps their king. He's so charming. He's like a charming southerner. If you want to... Although that's also a double-edged sword. Yeah, exactly. He's like, oh, shucks, I'm just a small-town country lawyer. <laughs> and you let him into... You, like, let him... You let him tell you how the Scientologists play a, like, 13-hour game of musical chairs that is really bonkers. Oh, yeah. Because you're comfortable with them. There's there's no way we're going to be able to just chat about every single thing in this book. It's a lot. It is very worth reading, and it is a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot, and that's partly it's partly due to John Ronson's great style in writing the book. I agree. Ronnie, I don't want to skip around too much, but should we cut right to the chase? The title of this book is The Psychopath Test. Right. What is The Psychopath Test? The Psychopath Test is a test created or developed by a man named Bob Lane who wanted a quick and easy way to diagnose people whom he thought were dangerous. 
quick and easy is a red flag in any genre, including microwavable mac and cheese. Right. But especially in possibly sending people to prison for 50 years. Exactly. How do you feel about the psychopath test? As harmful as Hot Pockets are to the roof of your mouth, <laughs> so are... No offense, Hot Pockets. No offense, Hot Pockets. Long may you live. So are like 20 what question tests? Yeah. 20 question tests to determine your fate. For a guy uh, who chose this book, you know precious little about the psychopath test. Uh, the story around it, because okay, it wasn't right. really about the test. It's about our reaction to well, it. Right. Okay. All right. Well, I'll, I'll jump in here. So Bob Hare, a fairly famous psychologist, primarily, or at least in large degree because of his invention of this test, created something uh, called colloquially the psychopath test. And this test has 20 items. In abbreviated form, this test is called the PCLR. So if you want to sound really cool, you call it the PCLR. And basically, each of these attributes are ranked on a scale of 0 to 2, only in whole numbers. So 0 is no possession of the trade at all. 1 is sort of a moderate amount. 2 is you have this attribute in spades. And so you essentially, you, uh, hmm. it's hard because uh, self-evaluation is, of course, very fraught. It's right. normally people who are actually considered to be potentially psychopaths usually have their records measured against this test. Right. So, for instance, if you committed a bunch of crimes when you were 12, uh, that will be considered as yeah. part of the psychopath test. Yeah. What else? Part of the development of the psychopath test uh, when Bob Hare was launching it at his conference in 1975, periodically people would accuse him of being a psychopath right. himself. Which is marvelous. Which is kind of hilarious. Also, like, I think it's worth saying, nobody scores a zero on all of these things. No. I kind of want to read the Let's things. go through it. Can we Let's go through the it. things? Oh, so we should we should also say, so basically the max score, if you have even a moderate degree of math skills, mm-hmm. is uh, 40, right? right? Yes. I think anything over 30 is considered psychopathic. Is that correct? I believe so. I think it's 30. I think it's 30. Apologies to John Ronson and Co. if we're wrong. All right, let's read these suckers. Yeah. Okay, item one. Glibness, superficial <laughs> charm. Ronnie, where do you rank on glibness and superficial charm? Uh, It depends on how I'm feeling that day, but I can turn it on. How about I, today? Uh. I can I can be charming. Like a one? Yeah, I'm a one. Okay. I can't. I was going to say 1.5, but you can't point five, can you? I don't know. Seems like it would make the test a lot more accurate. It would make the test a lot more granular. Okay. Therefore accurate. Cool. Are we doing just me? I mean, I was going to just do you, but if you want to make it about both of us, sure. That's what a psychopath would say. I think I'm also... Yeah. <laughs> All right. And let's just cut to the end. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think... Uh, I think I'm probably a one for glib and superficial charm. My charm can be very superficial if I'm not in the mood, but I think I know generally what to do. I think I love everyone, and it's all meaningful. Add five points for your (laughs) horrendous demon voice. It's a lot. (laughs) I can't not do it. All right, number two. Grandiose sense of self-worth. Mm-hmm. I have very low self-esteem oh fun so okay so zero for zero you for this one. all right so i'm gonna give i'm gonna give myself a tentative two on this one okay. and i'll explain why so i do feel a tremendous sense of not having lived up to some grand purpose oh yeah that's true. um I, I don't know i don't know if that's psychopathic but 
I'm not in my early 20s anymore. I should have saved the world by now, probably. What is it? Right? Yeah, it's grandiose. That's getting into the grandiosity part mm-hmm. of it, huh? Yeah. Yeah. We can yeah. give you a two. All right. I'll take a two. I, I, it, just, it would mean a lot to me if I could score the maximum on one of these, oh, which I think own. is a bit of a self-fulfilling grandiosity. That's true. Cool. You can be the one person. The next one's super fun. Need for stimulation, proneness to boredom. Yeah, where are you at? Zero. Zero? Yeah. Really? You're happy no matter what. That's true. Yeah, I, I don't cool. get bored. I think I think maybe like a one for me. Mm-hmm. I can self-entertain, but uh, God, there's so many so many easy masturbation jokes in here. Um, <laughs> I think I'm like halfway between needing to be constantly stimulated right. and just being okay no matter what. Okay. All right, so one. That's a one. Uh, pathological lying, bit on the nose, by the way. Yeah. I mean, you can't call it pathological if you're trying to diagnose a pathology. Exactly. That's a, that's a tautology. It's bullet points like this that make this such a bad self-administered test. Yeah, and that makes it a bad test that we use to commit people right. indefinitely. <laughs> like, let me let me just ask you, do you pathologically lie? No. Right, so we have a problem now. Right. <laughs> okay. So zero for both of us? Yeah, no, Perfect. I'm not a pathological liar. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, me neither. Lying is fun. Don't get me wrong. Lying is fun, and I can be a fabulous a little bit, but I'm not a pathological liar. Pathological lying seems like a lot of work. I'm a logical liar. Okay, cool. Conning manipulative is item conning, number five. Conning. 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 Is it conning with Look. an O? It does say conning. Yeah. Should we go down a brief rabbit hole of the difference between cunning and conning? Let's do it. Because I feel like it's kind of the same. Vocabulary word number one. I actually have a pretty serious suspicion that somewhere in the early 1600s, these two words were one word, oh, one word in Old in, English. Don't yeah, you think? Probably. To con- the conning and cunning? Because cunning, cunning is, I think, morally neutral, whereas conning, yeah. you're taking advantage of somebody. It has a lot to do with context. That's true. Yeah, I mean, conning is always bad, but uh, cunning, I think, is usually... Exactly. Like, cunning is used to describe superheroes in, 19, in the late 1950s. That's true. It was a different time. Like James Bond. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Do not take me back to James Bond. Should we do, uh, should we do Dr. No for our next book? Oh, no. <laughs> Dr. We're done. Hell no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyone, by the way, anyone who's not reading Ronnie's show notes, fuck you. Read them. They're <laughs> so funny. Read them right away. Go back and read all of them. Oh, gosh. They're really fun to do. And yes, <laughs> I do them. Sorry. It's just Ronnie. I am Ronnie. the man behind the curtain. That's true. I'm the man behind the show notes. All right, okay, so cunning and or conning. Manipulative. And manipulative. There is a young lady that I am, that I made friends with recently, Mm -hmm. who might just be sensitive to it because she also says that all men are trash, but you'll, you'll put that to the side. Sure. Uh, She also pegged me as a person that's super conning slash manipulative. Did she use those words? Manipulative, yes, not calling, not like, in a mean way. What did but you, you? Well, hmm. in in like a oh, I can. I've noticed that you try and get people to do things, and I'm like, what? If only I were that good at it. I would love to be a fly on the wall for this conversation. What did she say exactly? Let me think back. It was at it was at Quicksand, on Santa Monica Boulevard. Also, she's fucked now because you have a podcast. <laughs> no. She doesn't have a podcast to no. make her case. No, she's a lovely person and also a very good friend. Well, that's um, exactly what a manipulative person would say. <laughs> no, I think she, this was a while ago, she said that she noticed that 
I yeah, just on its face, I was kind of I kind of try and manipulate people, and I'm like, what? What were you trying I'm to not... do to her? No, we were no, we were talking about how we are both people watchers, mm-hmm. and she said one of the people she was people watching was me, and that I seem to have a tendency to try and like move people around like chessboard pieces. She sounds like, like a psychopath. No, she's a lovely person. Is she? Because yes. you used your demon voice right at the end. No, she's a lovely person. I want to put that stank on it. It's emphasis. You are sending so many mixed signals. I'm going to put you down for a one. <laughs> for Connie manipulative? Mm-hmm. I wish I could give myself a 1.5. Because I, like I feel like you're actually never a one, but you're very much a two or very much a zero. Uh, if I were skilled enough to be a two manipulator, I totally would. I don't know this woman. We don't have her on the podcast right now. I believe women, but also like what what was she referring to? I don't know. Nothing in particular that I could think of, but she, I, we were uh, in the process of making friends and she would see me hang out or interact with all the other people uh, that we were around and she would probably like look back and and notice what I was doing and that's what she came away with. To me that sounds like you are being socially adept, but I know you and you are my friend. Is giving you the benefit of the doubt something that earns me a one? I am desperate to give her the benefit of the doubt because she's a very nice young lady. Or a psychopath. Or both. She's not. She's a deer. (laughs) Your demon voice is beginning to confuse people. Um, Lack of remorse or guilt. (laughs) Do we each get a one for the last one? Yeah. Okay, great. Lack of remorse or guilt. I feel very guilty almost immediately about everything, so I'm giving myself a zero. Yeah, a zero, too. Cool. I'm racked with guilt. Sounds good. Super fun way to live. All right, next. Shallow affect, superficial emotional responsiveness. Hmm. This is tricky. Hmm. Shallow affect. Well, no, because I've been hurt deeply before. So zero again? Yeah, zero. I feel like you're cheating now. We're really not doing well here. Uh, parasitic lifestyle. I think I'm going to give myself a one. For parasitic lifestyle? No, we're still on shallow affect. Oh, shallow affect. What, did you skip callousness? Yes. Yes, I did. Whoa. And I'm so, not sorry about it. That's really psychopathic of you. <laughs> we should talk. Can we have a brief digression mm-hmm. in the middle of our testing, which yes. is probably interesting to no one outside of the two of us? Yeah. Even that is up for debate. We should talk about the difference between psychopathy and sociopathy. Sociopathy. Mm -hmm. I always learned it that psychopaths were more violent and sociopaths were more manipulative and cold. I thought the difference was that one of them hurts people and doesn't care, and one of them doesn't realize they're hurting people. Oh, I never heard of that That, I think, is the distinction. Okay. Yeah. Which one is which? Psycho is knowing. So there is a theory that psychopathy can be thought of as a more severe form of sociopathy Mm. with more symptoms. And I know this is true because I'm reading it basically directly off the Internet. Gotcha. So all psychopaths in this case would be sociopaths, but not all sociopaths would necessarily be psychopaths. Okay, so psychopaths Um, are squares and sociopaths are rectangles. Right. So I think uh, sociopaths... Are the are, are the group that don't know they're right, hurting others. Right. Psychopaths are the ones that know uh, and don't care because yeah. that lack of guilt and remorse mm-hmm. is kind of the touchstone. Gotcha. Cool. Does that help? Yeah. We are at. We're at callousness. Callousness and lack of empathy. Mm-hmm. I have empathy. I love everyone. <laughs> 
God damn it, Ronnie. You have to ease <laughs> off with the demon voice. No one is believing you. No, yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm a zero for callousness, lack of empathy. Yeah. I think, uh, hopefully me too. Yeah. I think okay. uh, I, I have a lot of empathy, I yeah. think, generally. Sure. That's weird to say. I have a lot of empathy. I that feels very selfish. I have a lot of empathy. I have empathy spades. Parasitic lifestyle. I mean. One. One? Yeah. Oh, interesting. This yeah. circles back cleanly to bullshit jobs. Right? Yeah. I'll put a one for me, too. Yeah. Yeah. Poor behavioral controls? Uh, I'm working on it. One. One. Yeah, one. Because two one is like you beat and abuse and murder people. And I don't do that. But I also have shown instances of poor impulse control so can I'm you not give, a zero can you give a recent example goodness no ideally from like today oh yesterday brunch too many mimosas i thought you said you drank a lot watching football yeah at brunch yesterday you really are the whole package i know i'm great are you still single yes should your listeners know should they know sure if you're looking for a man who pounds mimosas but also can talk his way around <laughs> the entire NCAA franchise, please email. What is our email address? TPBCpodcast at gmail.com. Just put get some Ronnie in the subject line and we'll know who to send it to. <laughs> oh, gosh. There I, are only two of us, famously. There are, there are only two of us. We, I've got so many problems in that. I, I think I know what has to be done. This is a very clean segue into the next item, which is sexual promiscuity. Promiscuous sexual behavior? Oh, gosh. If I were 6'5 and muscular, I would have so many children, <laughs> but I'm not. So it's like a theoretical sexual promiscuity? Like I don't if, like, if options were available to you? Yeah. you are, you're a super handsome dude, and your, oh, your pipes are so buttery. No, I'm not. Your um, voice? Yeah, oh, my God. No, stop it. But, yeah, I don't know if they want to take into account like if if you have if you had a childhood accident that left left you you know blind in one eye or you had something explode in your face and are horribly scarred mm -hmm. and if you weren't you'd be a handsome devil that would go around breaking hearts and uh scattering although daredevil is blind in both eyes and he still he's, crushes it yeah, on the regular he's still he still slays box i get it um <laughs> that's my <laughs> New most favorite <laughs> term. Okay, continue. <laughs> but yeah, if you had something that in a, let's say theoretically in a famously shallow town, sure. would disqualify you from consideration for a lot of people. Right. But were you in the game, you would be super promiscuously sexual. Um, does that count? I think we get it. I'll give you a one. <laughs> I'm going to give myself a zero. But yeah, no, actually, this is a, this is a weird question, though, because I think... Um, I don't know, I'm uh, my husband's super hot, so there's no telling. That's true. Again, yeah, you're yeah. just it's a market forces that are That's true. Really interrupting. Like if he if he like if something terrible happened to him, if he died, I would probably just go around ruining everyone's life with my sexual promiscuity. Who knows? No. So that's knows. a zero, right? Yeah, it's, that's going to be a zero. Okay. Because, you know, self-control and stuff like that. Promiscuous is my least favorite Nelly Furtado song, though. So that uh, Again, Nelly Furtado. We've apologized to you before on the podcast, but sorry again. Have we? No, but we should have. Hi, hi Nellie. Early behavior problems. Uh, none. I was such 
a compliant little boy. No. I had no behavioral problems. Zeros all around. I um I once got pulled aside because I snuck back into the school building during recess, uh, which meant that I needed a ten minute timeout at the school pool party. This okay. is a terrible what? story. That's there's mm. nothing. First of all, no connection between the crime and the punishment. Right. Second of all, Dominic Connolly, if you're listening, I still blame you for that. I never would have gone back into that school building if you hadn't made me. Damn it, Dom. His name is Dominic. Damn it, Dominic. It's a good name, though. Dom? Minic? Yeah, that's a solid name. The best thing about Dominic is that all the abbreviations are cool also. Dom? Cool. Nick? Nick. Cool. Yeah. Um, Nikki? Nico? Nikki. Nico? Nikki. Cool. Min? Dominic? Min. Nobody calls him Min. Yeah. <laughs> I used to cry in kindergarten. So that's a behavioral problem, but it's not one of the ones that... <laughs> It'll hurt you later in life. Yeah. It's not one of the ones that they, you know, put you in the corner for. It's more of a later behavioral problem. They literally put me in first grade because of that. By the way, I should have mentioned the one behavioral moment that I had in elementary school, I wept. I was sure that my life was yeah, over. Right. So that's very not psychopathic, yeah, right? I'm terrified of getting in trouble. Yep. Lack of realistic long-term goals. Where you at? Two. Two? Wow, that's extremely, extremely eager. You know my dream job is billionaire philanthropist. That's true. Everyone knows that. And you're on your way. I'm going to put a zero for me. Oh, really? I only think about what I'm going to do when I'm 60. Oh. You know, I I have goals. They're just not realistic. I, when I, like, late at night, like, I, like, shop for cabins and places where no one can find me. Oh, that's dope. Yeah. Actually, when I say it that way, it sounds a little psychopathic. Right. But I think it's just having really realistic long-term goals. Yeah, exactly. Cool. All right, moving on. Impulsivity. And, uh, again, this goes back to the... One. Poor, yeah, one. Oh, my goodness. We don't need your whole story. <laughs> poor. poor <laughs> I'm so full of stories I don't want to share. I'm just kidding. All right, one. One. Wait, what were you going to say, though? No, poor impulse control. Sometimes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did Bob Hare put the same thing on here twice? Well, behavioral controls hmm. and impulsivity? I guess. Maybe you think that you know, there's a difference. There's a grade of difference. Like, you think you want to hit somebody for a long time, and then you just get the idea in your head that you want to hit somebody, and you hit them. I mean, I feel like I'm harmlessly impulsive. Yeah. Like, I, I love to, like, drive out of town and, like, have a trip spontaneously in oh, the moment. Gosh, that's adorably impulsive. Okay. That's well, like then... the kind of impulsive that people put on OkCupid, theoretically. <laughs> What's the? Um, can you just quickly read the URL to your OkCupid profile, just for no reason? I don't know it. Yeah, I don't know it. If it exists, I don't know it. All right, we'll just drop it in the show notes later. By hand, <laughs> by heart. The next one is irresponsibility. Irresponsibility. I'll give myself a one. I'm gonna self-diagnose at one as yeah, well. Yeah. Failure to accept responsibility for own actions. I've been getting a lot better with accepting responsibility for my own actions. So I will put that as a zero. Wow. Because again, very guilt. Written, okay. Ridden with guilt. Great. Haven't been working on this so much. Going to give myself a one. Okay. All right. Many short-term marital relationships. I'll give myself an infinity. Okay. So to be fair. All right. So, so basically a zero to one scale, one, two, and an infinity. Great. Marking it down. <laughs> There we go. Perfect. Ronnie gets infinity for item 16. It's like one divided by zero. You can't quantify that. I'm like an NA in the spreadsheet. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to plop down a zero here. Um, (laughs) There is also an interesting caveat listed by John Ronson that I think also belongs to the original Bob Hare rule book, Mm -hmm. um, which is that based on your 
age, this scores very differently. Oh. So we might actually be too young to score highly oh. on this. I know. Well, that's too bad. It's really discriminatory. Really? I'm, I'll still give you an infinity. It makes me want to hurt somebody. <laughs> okay. Just All right. kidding. Juvenile delinquency, zero slash zero? Zero slash Great. zero. Okay, cool. Revocation. Of conditional release, that would be probably so. We've never a, right zero slash zero. Another infinity and criminal, criminal versatility. versatility. One. What? Yes. Say more. Well, criminal versatility. That means you can do blue collar crime and white collar crime and no collar crime. Like can do or have done. Well, I would go with can do because you walk around, and you think, oh, like I was driving home one day and one day. I was driving home a couple days ago and I was driving by a pizza place and there was a kid eating pizza outside and his uh, mom or caregiver had gone back inside to do something and I'm like, oh my god, I could ruin this lady's life if I snatched her child. (gasps) That would be... If you want to I change somebody's really, life. I really, really thought that sentence was going to end in pizza. No, no. I'm like, oh, my oh goodness. because there was like in growing up, there was like a summer in South Florida. There was a summer of child snatchings. Be honest. So, how many chi- how many childs have you snatched? Zero. Okay. Zero so far. Zero children snatched so far. Mm. But every time I see a, a child unattended after that summer, I'm like, oh, my God, somebody's going to snatch your, your freaking kid. What's your end game? Do you think that like you would raise them as your own? Or... Well, it was a little white child, which is why it was left alone peacefully. And also... Do you know who has the joke about white babies? Who? You'll know this off, t- off the top of your head. I don't know. I think... Uh, so, Cat Williams invented the white baby bit. But uh... um, but since then, Hannibal Burress has a very funny bit about basically having a white baby as an accessory. Oh, yeah. Are you trying to have a white baby as an accessory? Uh... Be honest. Couldn't hurt. Listen... I don't know that much about your community, but it seems uh, like uh, y'all are really into white babies. I guess. <laughs> I mean, there's no downside to having a white baby. Is there not? I feel like yeah. white babies are, like, pretty demanding. They could... Gr- you can groom them to be like Macklemore, who can move in any space that they can be placed in. But it's like uh, having a Manchurian candidate, Go essentially. On. Say more. Yeah. You can have a little white child that's like a, your Manchurian candidate. Mm-hmm. Like you flip a switch and all of a sudden the programming kicks in and oh my gosh, we passed the reparations bill. I don't know what happened. It was him. It was a white guy that did it. <laughs> Criminal versatility. Great. Is the last one. So what are our scores? Criminal versatility. I'm putting myself as a zero, but I do think a lot about, I mean, I think about like punching people in line if they're saying weird shit on their phones. Everybody thinks about punching people all the time. So that's a zero, right? Yeah, okay, that's a zero. Great. It's a really, it's a hotbed. It's like punching people, fantasies about punching people are table stakes now. Okay, great. Can you make some mouth music while I add this up? Nope, never mind. Okay, alright. Oh my goodness, your score is so low already. I'm barely human. Ugh, your score is 11. 11? That is so vanilla. So... Not proud of myself. One, two. Aw. Is it is it racist to say vanilla? Not yet. <laughs> but we're hopefully headed that way. <laughs> oh fuck me! I also got an eleven. Oh, we're still we're not worst. at all psychopathic. Aw, we won't get anywhere in life. Probably not. We probably won't be. C- we, we probably won't be CEOs. CEOs of Sunbeam. 
And plus, my name's not Mark, and you're a woman, so. <laughs> That's true. That's the rule. That's the rule. Uh, tell us about the CEO of Sunbeam. The CEO of Sunbeam is, Sunbeam is a man named Tony Dunlop. John Ronson approaches him by saying, quite cleverly, sticking to how John Ronson worms his way into different places, hey, Mr. Dunlap, who lives in Tampa, Florida, probably not a, an accident, there is this test that shows that there is a part of the amygdala that's associated with high success. He doesn't mention anything about it also being associated with, uh, or a variation as part of the amygdala being associated with psychopathy, but it's associated with being a very successful and somewhat ruthless business person. Mm -hmm. And so Mr. Dunlap is like, yeah, I'm successful. Maybe I have that amygdala thing going on. Right. And so he invites John Ronson into his home. And John Ronson ends up asking him to his face if he thinks he's a psychopath. Can we can we circle back to my favorite part of this, which is where the, the CEO has a tremendous amount of predatory stone statues? Yep, he's got, a, he's got a lot of... Yeah, and he lives in Florida. He lives in the Tampa area. So sure. if you're one of our Tampa-based listeners, this will be just normal to you. But he has a lot of predatory animals. Lion statues. Sculptures. Trending pretty hard in yeah, Tampa, in his, right? In his, uh, in his front yard of his giant house. I think that sounds sort of awesome. That, yes. As long as you look at them with the appropriate level of detachment and irony. Like, mm -hmm. if you think you're a screaming eagle, like Stephen Colbert style, and that leads you to gut your company and close factories all across the southeast, not cool, maybe. But if you want to make a leaping panther your quote-unquote spirit animal, that is racist, but, you know, we'll try and we, we've got to make up a new term that means spirit animal. That's not spirit animal. But if you want to say you're embodied with the characteristics of the noble panther... Uh, then great. But yeah, he meets uh, Tony Dunlap. Oh, excuse me. He meets Al Dunlap and kind of paints himself into a corner because he is right about to ask uh, Al Dunlap if he's a, a straight up psychopath. But he says, I was inside a man's mansion, not a maximum security prison or a mental hospital. And he's like, some psychologists say that if this part of your brain doesn't work properly, it can make you dangerous. I was like, what? He's like, dangerous. And then the guy whose house he's in, who's known for being, you know, not brooking too much insult, says, in what respect? Very thinly. And John Ronson is like, it can make you, I took a breath, a psychopath. Al, Judy, and Sean, the bodyguard, stared at me for a long time. I was in over my head. What did I think I was doing? I'm not a licensed medical professional or scientist. Nor, if I'm being honest with myself, am I actually a detective. So John is doing this thing again where he's, oh my gosh, I've stumbled into a situation because, gosh, I just can't help myself from calling a brutal 80 CEO a psychopath to his face. But I think that there's a part of John Ronson that's doing this on purpose and knows what he's doing. Right. He's just going to do it behind that guy's back exactly. later to right. like two million readers. More than two million. So. Also, I have to circle back for a moment. For a guy with a very sexy voice, books on tape, probably not for you. Oh, gosh. Well, 
pitch that long-term goal. You hadn't even introduced the character of Judy or the bodyguard yet. It's Sean the bodyguard. Hmm. They call him Sean the bodyguard. All right. Judy's well, his wife. you know, take care of your listener. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're such a psychopath. I know. The thing, the thing I love about this book is that it's very eager to entertain all sides. You yeah. know, I love John Ronson's just inexhaustible curiosity. I think we all we all innately understand that there are terrible things inside of us. Right. You can call it psychopathy. You can call it whatever you want. But I think there is there is moral terror in all of us. Oh, there's darkness everywhere. Right. So it's it's fun to both learn of people who are worse than you and also to entertain that part of yourself. As long as you're fully aware that there is darkness inside of you and you don't, you know, otherize people and say, well, that can't be me because I'm good. That's the most dangerous. There should be a word for that. Yeah. What is the word for that? Ignorance. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Ignorance. I'm a lot more afraid of ignorance than I am of psychopathy. How about you? Oh, ignorance is super dangerous. Psychopathy might be overblown, but ignorance is very, very dangerous. Psychopathy to me feels very individualized. Yeah, ignorance is a bit of an epidemic. Right. Great. For, for everybody else, not for me. Let's just make that clear. Or you, dear listener. Or you, of course. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably read, which already you win. Yeah, exactly. In an but, era of not that much reading. I know, but you're still capable of terrible, terrible things. Oh, Never yeah. No, we're all super, super capable of terrible things. Yeah. Do you want to not be capable of terrible things? I think it's important to be capable. Oh, yeah, you should be capable of terrible things. No, no, I mean capable as in you will probably do them and not know you're doing them. That's more of a proclivity than yeah. a capability. That's true. Yeah, yeah, you're capable of Not to split hairs. Right. Yeah, you're right. Okay, cool. I want to talk about another psychopath. Talk about it. Victor factors into this book, who is very near and dear to my heart. Because mm-hmm. he is. Go on. Like me. Aïtien. Oh, no. He's so awful, though. Toto Constant. C'est Aïtien, oui? C'est un de nous? Haitian listeners are loving this. I know, right? I remember very few things about this guy outside of the fact that he possibly forced individuals to rape their own mothers at gunpoint. Yeah, that's that's dark. Not dark great. Stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Emmanuel Toto Constant. He sounds, outside of all of the war crimes, like a real nice guy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Super charming. Almost like a psychopath. But we'll get into it. Get into it. He was part of the opposition to, um, so back in 1993, here here I am setting our readers up with all the characters they need to know about. Finally. Uh, There's a a priest, a street level Catholic priest named Jean-Bertrand Aristide, who uh, rose on kind of a populist tide to become a president of Haiti in the early 90s and part of the opposition the kind of uh, right-wing opposition, because it was the 80s, Soviet Union, everybody's afraid of uh, the spread of communism, and that really screws the world up, fear of communism. So Toto was part of this right-wing paramilitary organization called FLAP, which is Creole, actually, incidentally, for a hit, un flappe, so is the French version, but FLAP is like, you get hit, which is hilarious and is also my vocab word, FLAP, because it's also an Good acronym. Choice. It's all capitalized, and it's like, oh, FLAP. 
That's hilarious. What's the anachronism? Not an acronym. You mean acronym. Acronym. Great. Yeah, they don't list what the acronym is here, but the actual word is is frop. It means hit. And so he would, in the night, go and find people who supported Aristide and do real bad things to them and their families. They say that the men from Frop cornered some children in Cité Soleil, which is a slum in Port-au-Prince, in Port-au-Prince, and lit the slum on fire. And then when the children tried to run away, they forced the children back into their burning homes. And they raided a harbor town, arrested and beat and shot and dunked into the open sewers all the residents that they could catch. And then they got in boats and they shot people that were trying to flee on the ocean. It's super, it's all just horrific. Although I'm sorry, I did, I led with actual like mother rape. So that's (laughs) probably the worst thing. Oh yeah, it was terrible. The women would, uh, the men of the house would frequently be abducted and subjected to torture. Many would be summarily executed. The Mm -hmm. women would frequently be gang raped, often in front of the remaining family members. The age of the documented victims ranged from as young as 10 to as old as 80. According to witness reports, sons were forced at gunpoint to rape their own mothers. So, Toto Constant went to the United States. He fled to the United States and was f- ended up in Queens, New York, a big Haitian community there, and started doing another kind of hustle. And one of the many hustles that he got into in the United States was also working for the CIA. Yeah, so a super interesting dude. It is too bad that he, because he threatened to uh, reveal the full extent of uh, United States CIA involvement in Haiti in the 90s Mm -hmm. if they didn't extradite him back to Haiti to face charges. And he ended up staying in New York City. And so he kept what he knew to himself, which is too bad because uh, it'd be interesting to know exactly what went on in our little corner of the Caribbean uh, fully. It's a missed opportunity. Yeah, he's also probably a pathological liar. So he even if you you know liar. did sit down with him as John Ronson did, you're right. not going to get that much out of him. Yeah. Oh my God, I feel like as often happens on our podcast, we have moved from a jaunty place to a real dark turn. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, If we're going to go back to jauntiness, he also keeps a lot of toys in his room (sighs) in Queens. Yeah, this is weird. Can we quickly do it? Lots of goofies and muppets and and Powerpuff Girls and Men in Black. And it's uh, really, it's strange. Really strange. How many toys do you have in your room right now? Uh, Be honest. I'm not, none come to mind. Wait, I think one or two. Okay. Yeah. Although when I was growing up, I had a lot of toys. Me and my two brothers had a lot of toys. So that Mm -hmm. might be partly a Haitian thing in terms of just keeping lots and lots of toys around. And that partly might be a crazy person making his way in the world as a free man thing. And so John Ronson talks to Toto Constant, and John Ronson is immediately terrified by Toto Constant. Sure. Because he believes Toto Constant is trying to kill, it might send people after him. And Toto Constant lies to John to his face and says, oh, people love me. John Ronson was so duly afraid of Toto Constant that he actually profiled Toto Constant earlier That's right. in his career. That's right, and twice. took him out of whatever peace 
he was going to use him for because he was that afraid. But yeah. Yeah. Charmer. Yeah, oh my goodness. We, yeah, it's worth uh it's worth re-noting that multiple portions of this book, which is beautifully written, are quite dark and do explore some some real ugly niches of psychopathy. Right. Yeah. Or potential psychopathy. Or potential psychopathy. Right. psychopathy yeah. All right. What should we talk about next? Yeah. Weaponized holograms, perhaps? Yeah, let's do that. All right. Take us there. This is, there's another story about another individual named David Shaler. Mm-hmm. Who, oh, my goodness. There was this thing. I knew nothing about the Shaler affair until I read about it in this book. And that seems almost purposeful because it was so bonkers. So David Shaler was an intelligence agent for... Great Britain. And he said that he actually blew a mission that he was involved in. He said, oh, there are people that are going to assassinate Colonel Gaddafi, Libyan Colonel Gaddafi, at this time and at this place. And then at the appointed time and place, people tried to assassinate Colonel Gaddafi. And so the British media was like, wait, what? And David Shaler was like, oh, what? what?" sorry and so he was run out of the intelligence service and it was a big thing and i had no idea that there was such a breach in like western intelligence in mi5 it was just white out in the open yeah let's skip ahead to where he doesn't believe that any of the london bombings are real yeah and then shortly thereafter believes himself to be the savior Yep. So the probably the reason why the Shaler affair isn't a bigger deal is mm-hmm. that later on in life, he kind of becomes a crackpot loony, and he doesn't believe that the London bombings that happened on uh, July 7th, 2005, were an actual thing that happened. And then he later on believes himself to be the second coming of Christ. Yeah, he's a little bit of a Penrose staircase of lunacy, so it's hard to know what to hone in on. Yeah. It's a shame, too, because the whole the original Shaler affair, the the, uh, assassinating Colonel Gaddafi thing, it it was legit, but he just went way, way, way off the farm. It'd be a really interesting film if the same person didn't yeah. later think himself to be a reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Exactly. And so right. which is a real buzzkill in any sector at any time. Right. And so he becomes like a poster child for conspiracy theories. There's a woman named Rachel who was actually caught up in terrorist attacks uh, in the London underground who got wind of people that denied that 77 existed. And she was writing a blog initially to help survivors get together and share their pain and heal. And all of a sudden she's fighting off people who think that she is a composite put together by British intelligence and not a real person. Yeah, that part of the book is amazing to me because to me the Rachel portion of this story is the most interesting because I think ideally all of us who score score below 20 on right. the psychopathy test embarrassingly for some of us I know. It, we we find ourselves at odds with the zeitgeist in a way that is there's no like there's no beating twitter right there's right. no winning against the internet yeah 
And that's what this particular individual found the hard way. Poor Rachel didn't know that. And so she ends up going to this upstairs meeting. Yeah, she literally shows up to a meeting. It's like, hi, I'm Rachel North, the person you think doesn't exist. Of these pallid morons. Like she shows up and says, hey, you think I'm fake? You think I'm a composite? I'm a human person. Right. And they still don't believe her. It ends in a shouting match. Yeah, she has to defend her existence, which is not a, a position anybody should be put in. Not ideal. No, it's not what you want to be doing. So, yeah. So I think this actually is one of my most favorite and least favorite parts of the book, where an intelligent woman who has firsthand experience of a terrorist act has to defend her very existence to a cohort of internet morons who don't believe that she exists. Yeah, this is before people knew better than to feed the trolls, and so she thought, you know, people on the internet were still reasonable. I think still, don't we still feel that draw a little bit, though? Like, do you not feel like... Every once in a while, I want to play ball with a troll. I'm like, I'll fucking take you, troll. Do you not feel that anymore? Nope. No. Good for you. Because it's a losing battle, and also... That's true. You know, you lie down, or you wrestle in the mud with a pig and and soon enough people can't tell which one's which that'd be so racist if you weren't from florida i know right <laughs> yeah there i you know there are parts of this book that are just a super bummer and what's what's interesting to me about this passage is that most of the people rachel was up against are not psychopaths right but they are horrible and they are ignorant and they are you know stupid right and maybe the point is trying to be made that it takes somebody like david shaler to animate people that might you know be looking for something to lead them right and if you imagine that the psychopath's ultimate goal is a quest for power then people then the the adoration you get from sticking out in the way that he does with his uh, conspiracy theories. I mean, it's all the same to a, a quote-unquote psychopath, so why not Why not do it? Why not feed the trolls? Yeah. Listen, I want followers as much as anyone, but you have to answer to history, ultimately. Right. That's true. You know, David Shaler has sort of fucked himself historically. Yes. Yeah. They spend a portion of this book talking about the creation of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Which Mental is, Disorders. It's such a fascinating history, this, uh, because, I mean, not to blow it, but the DSM used to be a very, very internal right. piece of literature yeah. that then became very, very, very uh, public with the DSM-3. Yeah, now it's mad political and mad public. And things that used to be in the, D- well, homosexuality used to be in the DSM, famously. I think transvestic fetishism is in the DSM. That's got to be early edition, still? right? Oh, the four? Oh, that's too late. That's yeah. not nice. Usually the male with transvestic fetishism keeps a collection of female clothes that he intermittently uses to cross-dress. In many or most cases, sexual arousal is produced, although the motivation for cross-dressing may change over time with sexual arousal diminishing or disappearing. In such incidents, the cross-dressing becomes an antidote to anxiety or depression or contributes to a sense of peace and calm. Do you think that the modern DSM is trying to branch out from stigmatizing 
people with the mental disorders that it lists and is trying to look at them a little bit more neutrally than they used to? I think definitely, and this is one of the ways in which the widespread publication of the DSM, which has been super problematic in the past, which we'll certainly talk about, is probably a good thing, is that uh, I think in both um, creator and in both object and subject ways, the DSM needs to serve a wider populace than 45 to 60-year-old white male heteronormative psychologists. Oh, that's everything. Which I think for a long time, just based on the history of the DSM, has been the case. Oh, it's the history of everything. That's like saying the sky is blue. Right. So so I think it's good to let uh, perhaps other people into the room. Um, to write the DSM thing. Both in the writing of the DSM and also to say, hey, like I bought the DSM and this is super wrong. Right. Yeah. Also, let's quickly touch on... Uh, Let's quickly touch on this, you know, owning and buying of women's clothing. Listen, there's a lot of sexy shit out there. I, I'm not, yeah, I'm, I consider myself a feminist, uh-huh. but thigh high stockings, pretty good looking. And if you have nice legs, many men do. Right. It's not, I don't, I don't know that it's that weird to be turned on by them. Frequently jealous. At Go on. The variety. Mm-hmm. It would, it's almost like the crippling amount of choice <laughs> that's in traditionally feminine clothing. Yes, right, but, which we're going to touch on some, you know, commercial marketing of the early 50s yeah. in, in future episodes. <laughs> I, was, I was at an emotional, I was at a, a show yesterday by Emotional Oranges, great band, and they're a male-female duel. The female in the duo, the lady in Emotional Oranges, was wearing just the most killer mm. boots. Mm -hmm, mm Five-inch platforms, uh, five-inch heels, knee-high. Did you want some? Super, like, I couldn't get a close look at them because they were aggressively backlit because they do that thing with their identities uh, not being super apparent. But I'm like, those are some fierce shoes, girl. (laughs) I feel like it would not be weird for you to own a pair of knee-high boots. I mean... If I could go from, I mean, I could, I could fuck with being five eight for like an hour or two. It's, it's the best. Prince did it. That's true. Yeah. Oh, God bless Prince. Yeah, God rest. So the DSM three. <laughs> that was a very unclean segue <laughs> from Prince and his heels. I could, I will talk about boots for a while, but. <laughs> I feel like it's maybe bad for women if I talk for talk about boots for too long. Uh, there are. I have some pictures from the show yesterday. I'll show you. I would love to see them. Yeah, they're great. And then we can go boots shopping. I know. You should have a pair of good boots. Everyone uh, should. I know. Every should, person. Should every person should have a good pair of boots. You're right. I'm a firm believer in this. I, know. I don't believe in that much. I believe that every person should have a good pair of boots. Yeah, they're all for all types of weather. What else you got? Apparently psychopathy was looked at for inclusion in the DSM since the start of the DSM, but apparently Bob Hare, he of the creation of the psychopath test, Mm -hmm. and another sociologist named Lee Robbins, a young lady, Lee Robbins, disagreed about whether you can actually measure things like empathy. Right. And so they kept it out of the DSM. So we have Robert Spitzer to thank purportedly, for basically squeezing as many things as possible into the DSM-3. Right. Yeah? Yes. 
it went from 134 pages to 494 pages. Which is also super fascinatingly the thing that brought it onto regular, normal civilian bookshelves. It's amazing how a wide-ranging checklist to make sure, one, that you're sane, Mm -hmm. and two, that other people are crazier than you is going to be popular with with the populace. True. I think I think there's I think there's a long-standing desire to feel like you have an inside track in all ways. Uh-huh. And certainly an inside track into your own brain is hugely desirable. Right. Which would uh, lead to the widespread popularity Adoption. of the DSM-3 yeah. and subsequent volumes. Right. And of course if there are disorders, there are drugs for them. Correct. And so people can run out and buy those. And should we, does that mean that we should start talking about the right kind of mad? Yeah, I was going to, I was going to talk about reality TV too. Yes. Yeah. Let's do it. Because if there are crazy people, or if there is a spectrum of people who are disordered, mm-hmm. that means there are people that are less disordered and more disordered. Correct. And it's entertaining for us and for you to watch people that are slightly more disordered than you so you can feel better about yourself. We never want to be the worst. Um, We also, I think as our self-assessment earlier proves, never want to be the best because that's also suspicious. That's boring. um, it's, It's extremely boring. We'd make bad reality show contestants. I don't think anyone's inviting us to reality shows. Which is kind of depressing because everybody wants to be something and everybody wants to mean something. (laughs) And in this day and age, that means you be a little off your rocker. Do you want to create a reality show with me where everyone has it together and is trying to do good things? That was season one of Big Brother. Funnily enough, season one of Big Brother, they kind of voted out all of the people that were high conflict people. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so they were really peaceful. Ratings were terrible. And so Big Brother was like, you know what? We need more outrageous people on Big Brother. Yeah, God bless them. Yeah, the producers really did badly I in will Big s- Brother season one. I will say I'm deeply appreciative of, of life-giving reality TV. As someone who doesn't really watch reality TV, but mm-hmm. who does enjoy an episode of Queer Eye from time to time, yeah. where really things are just becoming better and more humanized. I'm super. That's super fun. There are two. Me. There are two three that do that queer eye is definitely one of those shows one of the other two the amazing race was mm-hmm. always mm-hmm. one of the positive reality tv shows do so you have man versus man man versus nature what's uh, the third it's got to be man versus himself man versus himself what's the third reality show that is probably going to be well no man versus wild wasn't really a reality show naked and afraid no what i meant is that there are three <laughs> there are three. Oh my goodness let's backpedal <laughs> There are three primary literary sources of conflict, right? Yeah. It's man versus nature, right. man versus man, mm-hmm. man versus himself. Also, yeah. by man, I obviously mean human. Right. Right. So, man versus nature is the amazing race. Right. Man versus man is queer eye. Right. What is man versus himself? Yeah, naked and afraid. Nope. There was this reality um, show. That is, that's man, man versus, versus nature. nature. Yeah. Well, there was a reality show where they locked people in a box. That sounds not life-giving. Like- that sounds uh, horrible. Yeah, no. But that did exist. Uh, <laughs> no, I remember watching it. They just left people in a room and they were like, hey, stay in this room. Don't come out. Think about whether the other contestants have come out and whoever stays in longest wins. That's 
psychopathy. I know. Okay, so What's the people, one I'm missing? <laughs> I don't know. I don't watch enough reality TV. Uh, we'll find it. Listeners, please email us with your uh, with your take on the most and least psychopathic reality shows. Yeah, which one is Man versus Himself? Uh, that might also be Queer Eye. It might also be Queer Eye. Mm. Internal struggles are not good TV. Uh, they have to be externalized, right? In like a bad beard. It is probably Queer Eye. Maybe it is Ninja Warrior. I think that's... Huh. No, I think you're actually right. I think Ninja Warrior is probably Man vs. Himself. That's a real dark horse because it seems like... um, It seems like American Ninja Warrior would be uh, Man vs. Other or Man vs. Nature, but I think it is versus himself. Yeah, no, they're not competitive. They're really just competing against how they did before, and and it's all about growth. Yeah, personal best. Yeah. It really attracts a lot of Christians. Does it? Yeah. I haven't seen it in a bit. Every other uh, ninja warrior has like a Bible first written on their arm or leg or something. They love it, which is great. To be fair, there are a lot of ninjas in the New Testament. There are a lot of ninja in the New Testament. This book covers reality TV in a bit of a way in framing for psychopathy because John frames it in such a way that the producers of the reality shows are looking for people that are just the right kind of messed up. Yeah. So John Ronson interviews a woman whose entire job is to basically screen people who have requested to be on reality TV. Named Charlotte. Yeah. And Charlotte gives us a little bit of insight into what they're looking for when they're looking for reality TV show contestants. So the thing about Charlotte is that she's both infinitely relatable and she also has a very, very specific rubric for evaluating possible contestants. Mm, Contestants is the wrong word. Possible participants on these reality TV shows. And reality TV can mean a lot of things. So we're talking about like Jerry Springer type TV, right? Right. Generally. So like real reality talk show type TV. Yeah. And the hack that she develops is so fascinating. She develops a medication hack where she figures out if you can just ask potential contestants what medication they're on, you can decide who to admit and who to dismiss. Exactly. Her gold standard of mood modifier for reality show contestant, the just mad enough, is Prozac. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the one. Also, uh, email us if you're on Prozac and let us know what that's like. We might have a casting opportunity for you. Right. Um, So Prozac, Charlotte explains, is for people who are kind of depressed, but not, you know, Mm -hmm. depressed Mm -hmm. in such a way where we'll feel bad about ourselves for looking at them in their pain. In the the grossest terms, no one's going to get dead. It's just you're sad and we're interested in human sadness. Exactly. Prozac was just the right amount. Schizophrenia, too far. Too much. Yeah. Yeah, Prozac was great. And there's a lot of cutting that goes into reality TV, too, which people know intellectually but don't understand when they're watching these shows. The producers and the editors are looking for the bits that are just mad enough. When somebody's behaving normally, that will not make it into the final cut. But when there's trauma that will correct so we'd love to meet people virtually who are worse than us yeah and yeah what else yeah 
uh, one example about how this can go really, really, really wrong is in the story about a woman named Delise. She was recruited to be on a show called Extreme Makeover. Oh my God, this is actually terrible. Again, this this book vacillates wildly between fun, jaunty anecdotes and super, super terrible stories of real human people. Yeah, so if you guys don't know if you're a little bit too young or never into the reality TV show game, Extreme Makeover, you might know as a show where they make over your house, but it didn't always used to be that way. Hmm. In its original iteration, Extreme Makeover was kind of a like the swan type thing where they would take people and make them over into uh, slightly more appealing in the eyes of water society people. And back in this iteration, the producers contacted a Texas family called the McGee's. Kelly McGee's sister, Delise, was going to be on an episode of Extreme Makeover. Delise isn't, you know, a person that is a would be understood to be a good looking person she's a contestant on extreme makeover season one yeah she had crooked teeth a slightly deformed jaw but her family she had a warm loving family Mm -hmm. and that got in the way of good television so the way extreme makeover would work is that they would have and record your family pointing out the things about you that need to be fixed which which her family was extremely reluctant to do because they were such a tight-knit and loving group. However, they were pushed to do so by the ramifications of the reality TV format. Right. And then... But it's okay because Delise was going to get plastic surgery and new clothes and great makeup to make it all okay. Except she didn't she got booted at the last minute and she had still heard her family's right uh, she had heard all of the criticisms from her family that had spent her whole life protecting her feelings mm -hmm. but since delise's recovery time would be too long to make you know the production schedule for extreme makeover to get it on air on time they decided to cut her and so she went home with a beautiful prize of what she thinks is what her family really thinks about her and was hiding from her. So to be clear, she got no plastic surgery, no corrections, but she did overhear her family basically naysaying her uh, physical appearance. Right. So I think we have to ask a larger question at this juncture, which is how psychopathic is reality TV that is not constructive as a whole? Not all reality TV. Reality can be positive, but like, how psychopathic is this genre that has so little empathy that they promise someone a life-changing makeover and then don't deliver, but do subject them to the worst of human judgment in the meantime? They delivered something because when they got home to Texas and sued ABC, right? Uh, Kelly, the sister happened to be bipolar and so she was so guilt riddled that she committed suicide she took an overdose of pills and booze and died once again this is a book that has a lot of very dark moments so we can talk about 
the difference between individual psychopathy and maybe mass psychopathy. Mm. Can a society exhibit the traits of an individual person? And how much are those traits conditioned? Right. So if you would think of the little world of reality TV casting, does it have a shallow affect? Does it lack empathy? Mm -hmm. Is it impulsive? Does it have behavioral issues from its start? Is it associated with promiscuous sexual behavior and so on and so forth? Yeah, I mean, you're asking some really good questions. It seems like it kind of... The search for and the distillation of the kind of worst of people coupled with the kind of gallows humor that you're going to have to engage in if you're going to be dealing with people and drawing people out, uh, their worst qualities out over and over and over again, as if you were one of the poor people in bullshit jobs doing a nothing job for days and days and days you'd be desensitized to how it kind of hurts people, and then you'd turn around and realize that you were a monster too. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, what do you say about this? I mean, I think that it's difficult to believe that an entire commercial subset has created a genre that is meant to make us feel something without reward. I think feeling better than someone feels great. Honestly, this entire section of the book is extremely depressing yeah, because it's really disturbing there's it's, the it's very disturbing there's the my boyfriend is too vain guy right yeah do you, you want know? to talk about that yeah charlotte uh the person that john ronson is interviewing mm-hmm. also she said she had a show called my boyfriend is too vain and right. so as one of the producers she wanted to extract examples of this uh young man's vanity and so she goes him and she just pulls all that stuff out of him and they put him on the phone and like you do with all the other producers you kind of have a laugh as it had his expense and then he calls back a couple of days later and cuts his wrists he had severe body dysmorphic disorder which is i believe in the dsm-5 <laughs> and everything is yeah and again he also takes his own life. I, th- I think there's an important conversation that we won't get super into on this podcast because it's above our pay grade. But above our pay grade or no, I think it's worth asking whether visibility plays a role in certain psychopathic tendencies. In terms of whether now that it's a thing, do people try and ape it? Yeah, or just the degree to which we feel ourselves to be perceived as a particular thing. Is that of harm to our identities? You know what I mean? So I would uh, would Joe X have cut his wrist if he wasn't on the air? Like, that's a good question, right? That That is true. That is a good question. Because I, I think there's a story you tell yourself in private, right? Right. You can take the psychopath test right. in private and get a certain score. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a different score in public. And that's, that's a hard sell. This is where this book uncomfortably touches up on actual like mental illnesses mm-hmm. that hurt people. Yeah. That cause people to die by suicide. 
because we're we're running around taking the psychopath test and being like oh my god is this person a psychopath is that person a psychopath mm, i'm looking sideways at this person and that person and littered by the side of the road are the bodies of people that actually get hurt by playing these games with mental illness and and accusing people of being dangerous and being nuts and so on and so forth and playing with all that kind of thing so it's definitely aggravating to have somebody on the phone pulling all of the dark stuff that lives inside you out to the surface it's gonna it's gonna mess you up like it did for the guy on on my boyfriend is two veins uh, production call the funniest thing about this chapter about reality shows is how john ronson ends it he says as i left charlotte's house that afternoon and drove back to london i thought well, at least I haven't done anything as bad as the things Charlotte has done. <laughs> Psychopath. It's becoming a game to be like, oh, that person's a little bit more mad than me. So it's but kind of meta. That's the He's rule doing it to her. of reality TV. Right. I don't I don't think John Ronson is unconscious of that. No. I think that's, you yeah. know, part of the interest of the book. Yeah, he wouldn't have put it in the book if he didn't realize yeah. that he was playing the same game. It's self-conscious and self-aware in the best way. This is kind of a reality TV show chapter because he takes somebody's experience where they're involved in... Yeah, I think this is Charlotte with Extreme Makeover and with My Boyfriend is Too Vain. They're involved in two deaths by suicide obliquely. And he's like, oh, this is fodder for my book. Yeah. And also, I'm glad I'm not that, I'm not that girl. Oh. Right. The worst. So another thing that's really interesting about this particular chapter of the DSM and all the reality shows that it spawned, which are not unconnected, is that around so around 1980, the widespread publication of the DSM Mm -hmm. allows individuals to self-diagnose in a way that was never heretofore possible. Right. Which means that we also have an explosion of opioid drugs. We have an explosion of anti-psychotic drugs. We have an explosion of all types of pharmaceutical drugs because for the first time, patients are able to go through through an actual checklist and say, I have this thing. Right. Which brings us to a really, really interesting chapter of history wherein all individuals are able to self-diagnose and to request a particular type of treatment. Yep. And they're also able to say that I have this thing because of vaccines to the extent that the individual, Dr. Alan Francis, who got Asperger's syndrome mm-hmm. put in the DSM, at this point, he's like, yeah, that was a mistake. One, because of the explosion, because that was the seed of uh, the anti-vaxxing movement. Right. And two, because a lot of kids are now being diagnosed with grown-up mental illnesses that can be, that can only be controlled with powerful anti-psychotic medicines. Yeah. I mean, I think this is very similar to the kind of thing that any conversation about politics involves volume, right? So, like, we can all be equally loud, but we're not necessarily all equally right. Right. So, if you have a copy of the DSM, all illnesses that were admitted in 1980 may be equally real and existent, but they aren't all necessarily equally valid or severe, right? So, uh, some of these exist in a way that needs to be heavily treated, 
some of these conditions exist in a way that exist on a wing and a prayer. Right. And you put that kind of power into somebody that is not in, in a position to be objective about it. Mm-hmm. And all kinds of things can go squeaky. John Ronson even talks about the particular agenda that underlied particular uh, iterations of the DSM. So the desire to admit as many things as possible so they could at least be diagnosed according right. to a checklist yeah. and not according to a doctor's whimsy. Right. Great, great idea. Great motivation. Yep. However, <laughs> it also spawns a whole host of other yeah. problems. Great intentions mm-hmm. all around. Great intentions all around. Subtitle of The Psychopath, Psychopath Test, Test by great John Ronson. In, yeah. Great intentions all around. <laughs> yeah, great. Oh, my goodness. I feel like much like The Psychopath Test mm-hmm. by John Ronson, our podcast started in a really upbeat way and took a very dark turn. If you want to end on a funnier note, we can talk about... David Shaler again. We can talk about Lizzie James and the and our friend the Satanist. Let's our talk friend, about her. The, the, the friendly Satanist. <laughs> um, so there in Britain, uh, as in America in the 1980s... Oh, can we do an aside about murder in Great Britain? Ronnie... You never have to ask. We can always do an aside about murder. Britain's murders and murder, their their murders are so sexy. They have, they talked about uh, when Broadmoor, the psychiatric institution, was created. They talked about, oh, this person, the Ripper, and the, you know, Edinburgh Stalker. And they have, like, two Rippers. And their their serial murderers were like super like Victorian and super kind of romantic for lack of a better word. And I wonder, would our murderers be as sexy if we didn't have so many guns? Because they run around with knives. You can't be a ripper with a high powered assault rifle. That's not elegant. That's a different verb. So I have a couple thoughts about this, which is that from time immemorial, the British government has basically perfected the art of romanticizing all kinds of nonsense, including crimes. So there's a bit of a head start there. Yeah. For sure. So Jack the Ripper, catchy as shit. Right. That's that's real. But I think that there's a kind of privilege attached to romanticizing your murderers in that way. Right. So that's thought one. Second of all, Great Britain has existed since, I don't know, like a long time, like the 1200s. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's a long time to get it right in terms of branding your slaughterers. Right. There's also an unsexy way to talk about all these people. Jack the Ripper could have easily been called ugly guy murders prostitutes. Yeah. But he was called Jack the Ripper. Right. Way catchier than ugly guy murders prostitutes. Right. Maybe it's a way for the British public to, putting it in a storyline helps them come to terms with the fact that somebody's running around with a knife stabbing women and until I think, they die. I think we, we have to take a closer look at the desire for psychopathy to be glamorous. Right. That's because why this book exists. Exactly right. If you bought it, you want to know if you're... A psychopath. Right. And I think we do the same thing here in the United States with our murder. Our storylines aren't as elegant, question mark, as I mean, we're, the great British ones. But we're incendiary, and we're kind of baby Britain. Yeah. Us in Australia. 
Yeah, right. Australia with the, they have a thing for children getting kidnapped, huh? Yeah. Do you listen to uh, Hello from the Magic Tavern at all? No. So much child death. Oh, really? Yeah. People who listen to the Magic Tavern are loving it. Oh, boy. But yeah, I guess every, I guess that's Britain's own personal flavor of how they deal with violent crime. Sure. Since they're like personal, super personal knife crime, more intimate than, you know, random gun crime like we have in the United States. But we still have our own stories about our own brand of of crime, which is dominated by use of guns and gunfire. Well, the, the crime documentary um, is a super fascinating phenomenon. Right. And a very problematic one. Yeah. I mean, can you make a crime documentary about somebody that goes around killing people with guns? That's just kind of weird. Like, there's no, there's no story there. There's no... I mean... Usually you make crime documentaries about, you know, the first 48 about kidnapping, stalking, more intimate type crimes. And I think that's what we're tapping into what the what spurred the British media to kind of put their line of rippers in the same box. Yeah, I mean, I think actually, realistically, historically, Britain had reality TV before TV, like they had serial killers before the format of TV. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have guns on a wide scale yet. So I think that's part of it. Also, guns are a lot more restricted in the UK. Right, in the United Kingdom. I mean, I think think the main problem with crime documentaries is that victims often become a vestige of the murderer, whether they are or are not the murderer, Mm -hmm. right? So it's often the same formula, right? First of all, definitely don't be a person of color in any place outside of a major city in the U.S. And don't accidentally be near a crime scene when a murder happens. Oh, yeah. There's just a lot of stuff. Rules to live by. Yeah. Don't listen to Serial Season 3 about the Ohio, the Cleveland courthouse. You'll be very sad and very angry. Oh, my goodness. Spoiler alert much? Yeah, don't. don't I haven't listened to it, but I won't. Please don't. I won't listen. It'll make you mad. Anyway, all this to say, I think that we're very enamored of people who kill barbarously. Uh And... If you're a person of color, just don't hang out near crime scenes. Yeah. Right? That's a shame. One more place we can't go. (laughs) One of these murderers, the murderer that uh, murdered a young woman named Rachel on Wimbledon Common, the British police wanted to set up a sting to capture an individual that they believed was responsible for this murder. This was during the cultural moment we had in the United States and in Britain, where we were obsessed with Satanism and Satanists. The whole West Memphis Three affair, where you had some kids jailed because the society believed that they were involved in kind of ritual killings and uh, Satan worship and link those two things together very strongly. That hysteria led them to let the British police to suspect a man named Colin. (laughs) Well, I know you didn't mean for it to, but that was a really anticlimactic sentence. Yeah. Um, So Colin... (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. It's just, it's really hard to take anyone with the name Colin seriously. Yeah. So Colin Colin Stagg 
was a man that was walking on Wimbledon Common the same day that Rachel Nichol was found murdered. He kind of looked like the killer. And this individual named Dr. Britton, who was helping popularize the theory of, you know, criminal profiling and all that kind of thing, seized upon Colin as fitting the mold of somebody who would have committed the murder on Wimbledon Common. And what they keyed on was that he wrote a letter to a woman in the personal section of a newspaper that kind of had a little bit of overt sexual things. And who among us hasn't? Exactly. If newspapers still existed, I, I would have like tons and tons of letters. That is so rude them. to newspapers. I know. Sorry. <laughs> but the, the Washington Post doesn't have a misconnection section. True. And it should. And on top of that, what made Colin Stagg an extra juicy target for Paul Britton and the British police was the fact that he was a Satanist. So he had a sign on his door that said, Christians keep away, a pagan dwells here. He had books on the occult and OMG, some porn. And so the police, led by Dr. Britton, said, okay, we've got our man. We just need to get him to confess. And they did try to do that in the most Benny Hill-like way possible. It's not ideal. It's not ideal. They invented a profile of a woman named... And Lee. hired a woman to yeah, fulfill they had a police it, to embody woman. it. Yeah. They had a policewoman go undercover as mm-hmm. a woman named oh my God. Lizzie James. Right. Who did not... Who was assuredly overqualified for this. Just speaking on behalf of women, they, she was overqualified for this, for sure. Yeah. So the woman that Colin Stagg wrote the 30 personals letters to, Julie, Lizzie James claimed to be a friend of Julie's and wrote him back and said, hey, I'm into all that freaky (laughs) shit. Who among us hasn't? Yeah. And when you're a young man who is a Satanist and writes letters to women on personal sections of alternative weeklies. We've all been there. And you have a lady named Lizzie Mm -hmm. write you back and be like, I'm in. Is that part of it? 100%. Her being named Lizzie? Is that part of it? I don't know. You just said, like, she's named Lizzie, like, in a way that that was, like, a value add. One, Lizzie's a hot name. Two. Is it? Yeah, it's Lizzie. Uh, Elizabeth is a great name. Like a friskier Elizabeth? Yeah, Elizabeth is so, you know, so bendable as a name. You could be Betty, you can be Betsy, you can be Liz, you can be Ellie, you can be Lizzie, you can be Beth. That's true. You can do tons of things with Elizabeth. If your name is Elizabeth or a derivative, please email us and object to Ronnie's reductive sexism. You can do so many things with the name Elizabeth. I agree. It's a great great name. Yeah. I've never said otherwise. Lizzie is going to be the hottest Mm. incarnation of the things you can do. Especially in Great Britain. Especially in Great Britain. And so you have a woman who sends you a letter saying, hey, can you write out your sexual fantasies for me? I'm really into it. Sure. Knock me over with a feather. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so Colin writes some stuff in a letter and sends it over to Lizzie. And it turns out being pretty tame. It, the book says, and so Colin wrote back detailing the two of them making gentle love in a park on a sunny day while whispering, I love you. I love you so much. The fantasy ended with Colin tenderly wiping teardrops that rolled down Lizzie's cheeks. So to recap, this letter does not 
pass the psychopath test. Like it is not psycho. It's not psychopathic. No, Paul Britton, the profiler, is like, no, this isn't crazy enough. Lizzie, turn it up. And so they- because if because if you write shit that's weird enough, you can get any guy to write that he will murder you. Exactly. That's what. Right? That's is what, that the that's the supposition? That's exactly what Paul Britton is banking on. And so he has Lizzie write back and be like, no, 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 don't be shy. I know you got some freak in you. Let's get it all out there. Excellent paraphrase. Yeah. And Colin is like, okay, great. You need a damn good fucking by a real man. I'm going to make sure you scream in agony. This poor guy, he probably felt so weird after he wrote it. Oh, he did. Because immediately he's like, JK, JK, I'm Mm -hmm. not a violent person. I'm just saying it because you like it, right, Lizzie? Mm -hmm. That's what you want. If you find it offensive, I can't apologize enough, he said. Why don't you come over so we can, you know, hang out and I can cook her my specialty rice bolognese followed by my homemade raspberry mousse. So Colin's the sweetest Satanist (laughs) on the planet. Do you know any Satanists? I don't think so, no. I have some friends who are Satanists, and they're legit, real talk, the kindest individuals I know. They're just like, they're the best because they're not beholden to any any traditions. Right. They have no enemies. Yeah. Except, I I guess, except God? Question mark? I I I think he's more of like. We haven't gone that far. I feel like he's just more of an irritant to Satanists. I do feel like he's a very conscientious fellow. Uh, poor, poor guy. <laughs> poor guy. But no, Lizzie comes back and is like, no, please turn it up. Up the ante. And then Colin is like, what the <laughs> hell is going on? This is the greatest thing that's happened to me. But one weird thing is that whenever I'm like, hey, why don't you come over? She's like, she gets quiet and backs off. To be fair, we do do that sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. You do what? We just we just back off sometimes. Oh, it de-escalate? Just us women, yeah. Oh, well. Not, that... not in a not in a sexist way, just in a like. Uh, yeah. You know, rice bolognese, possibly too uh, far. Too too far. Too much, too fast. Okay. Too soon. So Lizzie turns it up even further. A Paul Britton instructs her to say that she has a dark secret, maybe dot 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 murder, in hopes that. He'll be like, oh, my goodness, I have a dark secret, too. I murdered a woman named Rachel Nickel on Wimbledon Common last week. Right. And in any novice episode of Law & Order SVU, this would be called Leading the Witness. Exactly. But you know what Colin says? Go on. He says he has a dark secret, too. <sighs> the police think I murdered Rachel Nickel. God damn it, Colin. Because he's a loner. No, no, no. Ancient nativist police. He's just trying to be open with her. I hate this. I hate this. Oh, my gosh. And so, finally, the police have the policewoman actually meet up with Colin in a park because they really want to draw the association with parks. Right. And Massive eye roll. Parks are mostly safe. Continue. Yeah. And... Lizzie says, okay, here's my secret. I was involved in a satanic cult, and we sacrificed a baby for, like, a blood sacrifice thing. Once again, leading the witness. Yeah. And then they killed the baby's mother. And she was instructed to say she was laid out naked, and these knives were brought out, and this man handed me one of the knives, and he asked me to cut the woman's throat, and I did. And then there was this big orgy, and I was with this man... Well, this man was the best ever. 
And Lizzie <laughs> says she could only truly love a man who had done a similar thing. Once again, leading the witness. And you know what Colin says when Lizzie drops all this on him? He says, I think you're aiming a bit high. Nice. Uh, which is pretty weird. The lesson mm. is that, oh my goodness, for all the young gentlemen out there, it is so important to maintain your integrity in the face of a hot, horny woman. Also, always have an alibi, right? Yeah. Like, you have to always, always have been somewhere other than the park. Just, <laughs> you were never at the You're park. You're never in a park. No matter what, you were never at the park. But Colin, Hashtag Central Park 5. Exactly. You're never in a park. Always skip the park, especially at night. In fact, don't go anywhere. At just night. don't go to the park. Just don't go How to the park. How hard is it to not go to the park? Don't go anywhere. Just, just don't go anywhere. Just stay in jail. Just go to jail. Straight You're safer jail. in jail. Also right. at home. Also, just don't go to the park. Yeah, graduate high school and then go straight <laughs> to jail because that's where we're going to end up. I um, hate this. So Colin, Colin <laughs> is a stronger man than a lot of young gentlemen because... Mm-hmm. I don't know how many people could maintain their integrity in the face of that pressure that Lizzie James was putting on Colin Stagg. But he still is like, you know what? I'm not that guy who murders people. That's not, that's not me. And Lizzie was thirsty AF at a picnic, which is in a park, which is very, very British, but super thirsty. How many people do you know would like totally be like, you know what? Yeah, I killed those people. Let's do it. But Colin, sweet, sweet Colin, doesn't break. He is a hero to men everywhere. Is he, though? No, he's not. He just didn't. (laughs) Right. I mean, if the threshold is not murdering someone at the park. He didn't murder somebody. In a way, we're all the hero. One, he didn't murder somebody. He didn't murder a woman Mm. in a park. And two, he didn't mislead a woman to get in her pants. Right. Okay. Look at this guy. It's all good. It's all good. But, oh my God. Poor Colin. He's great. That's true. And then at the end, Paul Britton, the psychologist that put Colin through, and also the poor policewoman through this failed honey trap, says he doesn't believe he did anything wrong. He doesn't believe anybody did anything wrong. Yeah. Publicly... You never say you did anything wrong. Yeah. He was still arrested and charged with Rachel Nichols' murder, and he spent 14 months in jail. Can you hear from my voice that I've become depressed over the course of this episode? It's a really dark episode. Oh, my goodness. You chose this book. I did. I thought, again, I thought John Ronson was fun. He is is fun. He is fun. He's as fun fun as can be. But this, uh, this little subsection really, really gets into some dark places. But to wrap up Colin's story, he was only in jail for 14 months before a judge threw his case out, and then Paul Britton and uh, all of, of his stuff was... Think was of all the cool debunked. Satanist ladies he could have been meeting and getting with during those 14 months. I know. That is a loss. Right. And uh, also, the real killer murdered somebody else during those 14 months, so there's that. Which is why he got out, not unrelatedly. Oh, he murdered two people, a mother and her four-year-old daughter. But yeah... <sighs> That's uh, that's the dark I, side. I hate this book. I love this book. I hate this book. This is what happens when you try and play around with illnesses and when you try and wield calling somebody a psychopath like a cudgel. It can actually awaken some megalomaniacal tendencies in oneself, you know? Yeah. So don't call people psychopaths I think casually. That's, that's the lesson of this book. Just don't play with it. Uh, yeah, I guess so. 
in some future episode, hopefully we'll be reviewing like a, we'll be talking about like a DK book and uh, maybe we can have John Ronson on to sort of weigh in on like Dorling Kindersley's medieval times. Yeah, He'd probably have a lot to say. I'm sure if he did another one of his infiltrations into a subculture, mm. but with children's book authors, he'd ruin it too. I, I believe that's I the believe. case. And I mean that as the highest compliment. Exactly. Any final thoughts, Amanda, on the psychopath test? Uh, yeah, I have a bunch, but we'll leave it at this. Uh, you already did your vocab word. Mm-hmm. Do you want to recap the listeners? FOP. It mm-hmm. is an acronym for a violent paramilitary Haitian group in the early 90s and also means to hit somebody. Super great encapsulation of the tone of this book. My favorite vocab word is nebishly. Nebishly. That's such a nerdy word. It's, well, it's I mean, a nerdy word that means nerdy, right? Sort of, yeah, yeah. So a nebish traditionally means someone, usually a male, but I don't, you know, want to be reductive. Mm. A, a nebish is a person who basically is very, uh, very timid, very ineffectual, very um, kind of a weakling. Right. Nebbish. Mm-hmm. Nebbishly. Oh. So nebbishly basically just means uh, you're a shithead. Oh. You're I not doing a it, good job. I wouldn't think of it that negatively because I was about to be like, hey, may, my man Colin Stagg, the Satanist with an iron will. No. It's okay. Well, then let's let's start the definition of nebbishly over again in a kinder way. Okay. Okay. So to be a nebbish means that you're basically a little bit weak and you're perhaps looked down on by society or perhaps a little bit timid or shy. Right. Right? Yeah. It's a it's it's not a nice thing to call someone. Oh. I didn't know that. I thought it was a neutral word. Are you serious? Yes. All of those adjective synonyms are negative. Whenever I'd I'd run into the word nebishy, I thought it was like, oh, he's just a kind of nerdy guy. I didn't think it was accusatory or negative. Well, your empathy means that you are for sure not a psychopath. Hey, (sighs) there go my dreams of being an actor. Can we read something really, really upbeat next time? Yes. Do you want to introduce our audience to the super upbeat book we're going to be reading? Yes. Next time? Next time, our book is 100 Amazing Facts About the Negro. Hail. It is actually a really, really cool book that started out as a series of articles on a website called The Root. And it was collected, uh, written and collected by our professor Henry Louis Gates Jr. into mm-hmm. a book of 100 historical facts about African-Americans, Africans, and the experience of the diaspora from actually prehistory. Yeah. I've just begun reading it. It's dope as hell. It's great. Have you heard about the, uh, you know about the 400-year return in Ghana, right? Uh, I think I did, but I've forgotten. Not trying to put you on oh, the yeah, spot. Oh, yeah, yeah, for, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so yep, 2019 yep, 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 is widely yep, yep. held so to be the, four, exactly right, right. the 400-year return right. uh, to Africa. Mm-hmm. So this book has not been uh, more timely ever. No, it hasn't. And it's really interesting to learn about all this cool stuff, and it really makes you feel some type of way about how things have turned out. If you didn't enjoy this episode, do nothing. Do nothing. If you did enjoy this episode, 
immediately go onto Apple Podcasts. And rate and review it. Right. And just like click like five stars right. and be like best podcast ever or like right. at least a pretty good one. Right. And then if you feel like you would like to contact us directly, you can do so at tpbcpodcast at gmail.com. Yes, we love it. We love to hear from our listeners. And yes, in the meantime, go read books. Certainly read 100 Amazing Facts About the Negro mm-hmm. by Henry Louis Gates Jr. And we'll meet you next time right here in the Blanket Fort. Correct. Thank you for listening. Bye.